0: Hey guys, so I published a couple articles the past couple of weeks talking about how the layer one blockchains like Ethereum and Solana should be valued. So basically I was saying these layer one chains are more similar to sovereign states, nation states, national economies, rather than to companies or stocks. So you should look at them and value them as you would value a currency of a country instead of the stocks of a company. So after I published these couple articles, I got some interesting questions from readers. So today I will try to answer some of them. And uh, I want to thank David S. for compiling some of the questions that, you know, that showed up in some of the Twitter threads that I pushed out. So thank you for that. So basically the idea I was trying to say is if you look at the economies of Ethereum and Solana and Avalanche and you know Phantom and so on these are more like economic ecosystems right with the layer 1 blockchain providing a infrastructure and security layer for the development or the so-called dapps to run on top and different applications for DeFi and NFT and so on and so forth, can be built on top to form an economic ecosystem where you know different activities happen and different players rely on each other. So it's very similar to an economic system of a sovereign state. And the native token of the platform is just like the currency of that, nation states. Now, there are some distinctions here. Obviously, it's not one to one comparison. It's a analogy, right? So um, these layer one tokens are they they are like currencies, but they are also like stocks. They're like bonds, depends on how you use them. Right. So they have these combination of characteristics. But the thing is, the bigger the economy grows, the bigger the platform's economy grows, the more these will act like currencies and uh, what will determine their price, quote unquote exchange rate, because what people usually care about is their exchange rate vis-a-vis fiat currency like United States dollars. Right? So what determines their exchange rate with other currencies in the long run is the size and growth rate of their economy. In other words, the GDPs of their economy, right? It's, it does not, a lot of people fixated on you know the dividend flows oh how much revenue is this pro- protocol is receiving i think that's kind of misguided that that is capturing the you know people are trying to draw the um analogy the similarity between these tokens and uh, um and, and and company stocks and they're trying to use the valuation methods like you know this discounted cash flows or pe ratios to evaluate these tokens. But the thing is, yes, these are sort of like stocks, but they are really a lot more like currencies. So basically what determines the price of the currency, in other words, the exchange rate, is how much this is needed to run an economy, right? The bigger the economy, the more the currency is in demand because you literally need the currency to make transactions. In this case, every transaction you conduct on a layer one chain, you have to pay some transaction fees and then transaction fee is paid in native token. And that's where the basic, la- basic level of demand is coming from. And we're not even talking about you know, the demand for staking and for yields and so on and so forth. So that is why you know, there, there, there is a, um, I think you'll find a long run, long run relationship between the size of the economy of these blockchain nation states and the value of their tokens. Now there are short-term fluctuations for sure. It's not going to predict what the day-to-day price of the token is going to be. And there's also, you know, the market is, um, a speculative market in the short-term and and there are market cycles that, you know, sometimes the demand far outstrips the supply in the market because of speculative cycles. Uh, But in the long-term, the to the price of these tokens, in in other words, the exchange rate of these tokens should follow the size and the growth of the on chain economy. So that was what I was trying to say. So let's get to some questions. Now, first question, um are you suggesting that the proof-of-stake layer-one chains will replace sovereign global fiat currencies, such as the dollar, the euro, et cetera, or is more like they will function in tandem with those fiat currencies. Um, they're not gonna replace fiat currencies because fiat currencies are currencies of nation states too. You know, I live in the United States, I have to use dollars. I have to use dollars to pay my taxes, right? I have to use dollars to buy my, you know, daily, um, you know, expenditures, goods and services, that's not going to change. As long as that does not change, as long as the real economy, the physical economy still exists and nation states still exist, the fiat currencies will exist. And and that's why you also see, you know, in smaller countries, there's this so-called phenomenon called dollarization, right? So in some countries, their local currency, the quality of their local currency is not great. So people prefer to use dollar. But very rarely do you see an economy that has 100% dollarization even in countries like Argentina you know Venezuela the, the currency is not great and people have very low confidence in the co- local currency so people really really prefer dollars but why doesn't the local currency die because you still need it to pay taxes government still you know accept it as uh, as as a part of the um obligations that you have to pay for the public services the government p- provide and that's a big deal and that you know it, in a lot of countries um, that doesn't have that don't have a credible monetary policy scheme that's what keeps the currency alive it's the public sector's role in the economy okay so that's not going to replace fiat um, second question um, how does issuing more Sol or AVAX, those are native tokens of Solana and Avalanche. How, how how does issuing more of these tokens get the economy of Solana and Avalanche going? So this is um, referring to a comment that, that I wrote in one of the articles. I was saying, just like the Fed prints US dollar to get America out of COVID slump, new layer one chains like Solana and Avalanche issue more Sol and to get their economy going. So how does this work? Well, um, a lot of these layer one chains, they are giving out incentives for development activities, right? They're giving out grants in terms of native tokens for people to actually, to, to incentivize people to build stuff. To in, in, in other words, to, 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 to construct, um, to, to incentivize the construction activities in the economy. So that, that, that is one. Right. So that is literally like the economic stimulus that that the Federal Reserve will give, put money in people's pockets so people go out and spend and use and invest. In this case, you know, you give incentive for development teams to build stuff on your layer one chain. And also, um, these are also, you know, incentives you give as token, as uh, staking rewards to to the uh, system validators, because these are the so-called proof of stake chains, right? So you 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 need to give rewards to people who actually, who um, who put up their token as bonding to earn the right to process transactions, and as the reward for processing transactions, they earn um, some native token. And part of that, at least right now, you know, part of that revenue that validators earn is from the revenues. Of the protocol of the layer one chain, but since most of these chains are still small right now, a lot of the rewards are actually inflationary rewards meaning literally the protocols uh, you know uh, gives out more new tokens to validators so is this is again it's a incentive to keep people to incentivize people to participate in the chain in this case to provide security for the chain. So, and also if you, like in some chains, if you open a new wallet and you do some transactions or you put up a, you know, minimum balance, uh, you will get an airdrop of the native token. I think AVEX does this, how much they, I I don't remember how much they give out, but I remember when I first, uh, you know, open an AVEX wallet and I put some tokens in it and I automatically got a airdrop. So these are, you know, just different ways for, chains to incentivize people to actually do something to, you know, to invest, to consume, to interact, um, create economic activities on their chain, all right? Okay, next question. Um, Please give specific examples of where the traditional financial system is clogged and where it's leaky to help us understand the shortcomings of traditional finance. So this is again, um, it's referring to something I said in a earlier article, I said the Federal Reserve has to rely on traditional financial system to push its monetary policy out to the economy, but TreadFi is a crappy pipe, clogged in places it should flow, leaking in places it should hold. So um, this is asking what I mean by that. What I mean by that is if you think about the traditional monetary policy of of the fed right you have the you know basic tools of monetary policy such as lowering interest rate but when you lower the interest rate you still what, what you what you expect to happen is you expect banks to lend out more money because you know theoretically if you lower the interest rate it you know gives more incentive for people to borrow it's cheaper to borrow right so it should theoretically encourage credit creation. And you and credit growth is, is usually associated with with economic growth, because, uh, you know, again, you, you, you borrow to do stuff, right? So you borrow to build houses to buy, purchase things and that stimulus, you, you know, get the economic cycles going. So but but, but the problem is, it, it works to some extent, but at some point, if these tools stop working. For example, we are in a very, very low interest rate environment, right? So if you ha- if you're already in a low interest rate environment and you keep lowering the rates even more, what happens is uh, bank- banks throw in the towels. Because you think about when you operate a bank, where does your profit come from? It comes from the margin that you get from your lending rate and deposit rate. That's the profit that you make as a bank, right? Now, when you're lowering the lending rate, when you when the interest rate reduce, is 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 dropped, your lower rate your your lending rate drops, right? So that squeezes the uh, your profit margin. Your deposit rate already is very very low, and keep in mind this is there is a zero lower bound. You 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 cannot like. <laughs> banks at least so far ha- haven't been giving negative interest rate to 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 savers right so on on the on the lower end your the deposit rate you give out has it zero lower bound but your your lending rate keeps reducing so your profit margin gets smaller and smaller and what happens when when your profit margin gets smaller you have to give out a bigger quantity of loans in order to make the same amount of money, right? So how do you give that, you know, bigger quantity of loans? You still, you have a cost for giving out loans, okay? It's not like uh, you, you, you you can just uh, handle those loans without, uh, you know, any kind of due diligence. So if you give out 10 $1 million loans, you have to do 10 due diligences, and, you know, roughly speaking, so if you want to drastically, if your margin is reduced, you have to really expand the quantity of your loans. It's not an easy thing. So at some point, you, you, don't, you don't feel like giving out more loans anymore because it just means more work to you. And there is a limit to how much, uh, uh, how, how much more due diligence, how much more loans you can do, right? So what do banks do? you give out bigger size of loans you stop giving out smaller size loans because that's not that's no longer profitable for you right so you give out bigger size loans to bigger companies because those are the ones that need bigger size loans and so what happens is when you, you that that's that's a you know that causes the huge capital misallocation problem in the you know since the financial crisis, even before that, before '08, okay, you you keep the Fed keeps lowering interest rate, so because theoretically they will stimulate the economy, stimulate lending, right? But you you like banks have to push out more loans, and as but but the banks cannot keep doing that with the with the smaller sizes loans because you you every loan you give you there is a fixed cost, right? So you have to go after the bigger, bigger and bigger companies and, and forget about the smaller, like mom-and-pop shops, forget about you know, the, 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 the smaller consumers. So what happens is you have the access to capital of large corporations, whether they're profitable or not, whether they need money a lot or not. The, 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 the cost of access to capital for bigger corporations it's lower and lower. But the cost of capital for smaller companies, for startups, for the, your main street you know, mom and pop shops, the cost of capital do not decline and even increase. As they, as they, you know, it's, it's a funny thing, you, as a start startup, smaller company, you still need to pay like 20 to 30% for working capital loans, and that, that's, that's a, I think that's still on the cheaper side. And on the other hand, you know, bigger corporations, bigger companies, they're swimming in liquidity. So um, the cost of access to capital is very, very low. So it creates this very imbalanced economic structure. That's why I mean, that's, that's what I mean by, you know, it's, it's clogged where, where it should flow. Well, it, the places that it, it should not get money, it gets money. And so, and, 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 and also, you know, banks with all this liquidity, they don't want to lend, right? Because the, the, you, you, you cannot literally deploy so much capital with smaller amount of uh, loan size. So banks put them in, you know, uh, uh, corporate bonds uh, in alternative assets. That means, you know, companies that are large enough to get access to the bond market they have very low cost of capital. The rest of the companies, your, you know, the restaurants next door to your house, they they don't get access to corporate market. Okay, <laughs> uh, so 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 that's that's uh, that's over time creates this very uh, peculiar imbalance in the allocation of capital, and that is not good for the economy. Um, same thing with the asset purchase, the so-called quantitative, quantitative easing of of uh, the Federal Reserve. You basically purchase asset and you get liquidity into the banking system, but the banks don't want to use that liquidity for lending, for the reasons that we just talked about, right? So um, that's the thing about traditional financial system. Financial system is you you have to rely on the you know traditional banks. <laughs> And traditional banks is not working very well. Um, Okay. So, and, and, and I had another article, uh, talking about what's the, you know, competitive advantages of DeFi over traditional banks I, I recommend you check it out. If you haven't, um, I will try to link it in the video below in the description, if I remember. Okay. Um, all right. Next question. Uh, so, it says you you, you mentioned that proof of stake gives citizens citizens meaning the you know validators and stakers in the economy a sustained motive to hold the native token. Is the bigger distinction you're trying to make here between proof of work and proof of state proof of stake that proof of stake gives people steady yield plus equity appreciation whereas proof of work only offers appreciation. Yeah. So if you, so like Bitcoin, for example, it's proof of work system. So, and there is no, not, not much of economy built on Bitcoin. Now people are trying to do that. And I don't see a point of doing that because Bitcoin is not a very scalable chain, Uh, (laughs) but you know, each to their own people are trying to make the Bitcoin, Uh, smart contract system work, and I just don't see the point. Um, But the thing is, Bitcoin is proof of work. So who gets the transaction fees? Um, The, uh, you know, the, the Bitcoin miners, right? So in a proof of stake system, the validators who put up capital to locked up capital in order to earn their right to validate the transactions, they get a reward. And also people who tag along like I can delegate my Solana or Ethereum 2.0 to some other other validators so I earn the same staking yield as they earn minus a a bit of fee that they that they take for providing the service right so um so 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 you see uh, if I buy bitcoin I don't get any yield at all I don't get reward of of from the economy the miners get the reward. so the incentive for me to hold Bitcoin is to expect the price to go up tomorrow. OK, so uh, that 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 will probably happen. Bitcoin price will you probably go up. But the thing is, it will not go up forever. So how is this going to be a sustainable system? Right. Twenty years down the road. Um, but with proof of stake, even if the token price is not going up, you still are getting the yield every year. You you are participating in the economic system, and uh, um, as we said, as, as I mentioned earlier, the bigger the on-chain economy grows, uh, you know, the more value added that gets generated on-chain, it's gonna benefit the stakers. and those are the people who get the rewards. Okay, so um, that's that's a that's that's a major uh, distinction. That I see here is, uh, you know, in terms of the distribution of uh, economic benefit between proof of stake and proof of work. Proof of stake encourages more wider, demo- you know, democratic participation in the on-chain economy because everybody can get a piece of the pie in terms of value added generated by the economy. Proof of work, there's no such thing. There is no such distribution. So, um, okay, so next question. Uh, It's about the delegated staking and liquid staking. What do I mean by those? So basically, like I just explained a little bit, delegated, I think on Solana, uh, on Ethereum too, actually on every chain, it's, um, you have to um, hold a certain amount of token in order to become a validator. Right. And even though you have that amount of token, you may not feel like running the uh, software to actually validating transactions. So uh, what you can do is to tag along someone else who is actually running a validator node and uh, uh, you, you, you know, you, you stake through them and then you get the staking reward. So that's delegated staking. Um, and there's no minimum amount that you know m- minimum requirement for how much token you you have to stake. You can stake a little bit or a, whole, or a lot, uh, depending on how much you have. Um, liquid staking is like so. Usually, the staking on layer ones there is a lockup period, right? So, on, I think on, on Ethereum two is like. It's very long, I forgot how long it is, but it's, uh, you, you, you cannot get if you stake eth 2 now, you, you cannot get it out until after Ethereum completely moves to uh, proof of stake, and who knows when that will happen. <laughs> and then even after that, it has to like system has to run uh, you know, after a certain uh, you know benchmark is passed, certain milestones are passed before you can take that stake out, before you can unstake. Um, And I think on Solana, if you stake and you want to unstake, it takes like maybe two, three days to to get your tokens out. So if you don't want that staking, that lockout period, there are services that give you that liquidity. So essentially, they, they manage the book of all their clients. And they have their own liquidity. So, so if you want to take the token out, they give you the token. You tomorrow you said, okay, I I don't, I don't want to stake so I don't, my soul anymore. Give me this amount, my soul back plus the staking reward, and they will do that. And since they are providing a liquidity service, they take a cut. They you know they take a fee, right? So that's that's a liquid staking. Um, okay, next question. So I said staking increases the stickiness of the on-chain economy citizenship, the citizenship of the proof of stake chain's nation state. It boosts price stability of everything denominated in the layer one token and lowers transaction cost. And the question is, how does this lower transaction cost? Well, here's the thing. Um transaction. So, so when, whenever there is, if the currency, if the price, if the value of the currency is very volatile, it increases the transaction cost of every transaction, it, especially if that transaction is of a time dimension, like lending and borrowing. Or if I need, if I'm a company, I need to set a price for for a, for a product, and that price needs to be stable um, over a period of time, right? So, uh, if if I if I you know sell this uh, this this microphone, um, I have to set a price. I don't know two hundred dollars, and uh, I don't want that price to change every day, right? So, which means the 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 value of dollar better be stable. A year from now, $200 should mean roughly the same thing as $200, what $200 mean today. Otherwise I have a problem as a company. If dollar depreciates 50% a year from now or appreciates 50% from now, I don't know how to run a company (laughs) because I cannot change my price every day. Uh, but at the same time you know i have costs right i have to hire people i have to pay people i have to p- pay my vendors and suppliers and all of these costs incur I, I incur these costs in different time frames and if the if if the price if the dollar price is not stable unless i keep changing the price that i sell the microphone for otherwise my profit is going to shrink or expand in a very unpredictable way And it's going to be a huge problem for me as a business owner, right? Same thing with lending borrowing transactions. Um, If the currency value, you know, no matter in which direction it it changes, it better not change a whole lot. It better be stable so that both lender and borrowers have a clear expectation in terms of what the contract, what the borrowing contract actually means, right? So that's why i i cannot you know nobody's gonna borrow bitcoin for a mortgage how do you borrow bitcoin for a mortgage I, I i tell you okay i lend you a hundred bitcoin so that you can buy a house you pay me back over 30 years and charge you three percent interest rate but you know remember this is bitcoin okay so you pay me back in bitcoin three percent a year over 30 years but you're expecting Bitcoin to appreciate like uh you know a whole lot, but how much you don't know you don't know where what what the exchange rate or or what the value of bitcoin is going to be thirty years down the road, so you're not going to enter this contract this contract is going to involve endless negotiation because you and I are never going to agree on how much the interest rate should be because neither of us know what price. Bitcoin will be 30 years from now, okay? So I will feel like if if you pay too low an interest rate, I will feel like being cheated for lending you that money, right? If you pay a 3% interest rate, you're like, okay, if if, if Bitcoin price goes up 1000X, 30 years from now, you're gonna pay like a whole lot more than the value of your house. So, so these are transaction costs. So, so whenever you have currency prices, currency values fluctuate wildly, it's not good for economic activities of any kind. That's why you know um, every central bank. What they try to do is to achieve price stability because they want to minimize minimize transaction costs and set a stable, predictable expectation for everybody that is conducting economic activities in their on their platform in their economy okay so at least that's the intention whether they do a good job or not that's a totally different question (laughs) okay but that's the intention they want to stable the economy they want to stable the price level so how does that relate to the layer one chains when you have a proof of stake system you encourage people to stake right so you, you, you discourage the kind of fast flows in and out of this currency. If you have like a huge flows in and out of the currency, uh, you, you, you make the price volatile, right? On the other hand, if, if most of the time it's stable, there are not a lot of buying and selling in this market. Your, 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 your price is more stable. So in the long run, it's going to reduce the transaction cost. Of the economy, versus a scenario where the currency price is not stable, right? So, like for example, for Bitcoin, I don't think it will ever be stable because there is there there's just no 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 anchor there, you know, um, compared to the a proof of stake system now, but still, none of what I just said apply to the short term. Because in the short term, all of these economies on chain economies are expanding like crazy, right. So in, in the so in the article, what I said, and also I, I just explained five minutes ago, in, in the long run, you have you the, the currency price should be positively correlated with GDP growth. So if you have Ethereum Ethereum economy growing like 200% a year, you cannot expect the currency price to be stable. Okay, so, um, but that said, this is because we are at a very early stage of these on chain nation states being built from scratch. So it's very early, so none of these currency values are going to be stable right now. Okay, so, um, but this is what what I was talking about is more of, you know, in, in the long term. I think the proof of stake system is going to have a more stable currency value compared to the proof of work system. Um, what are the, okay, next question. What are the risks to the reliability of layer one yields and what could make one of these layer ones collapse? Okay, here's the thing. We have, I think over 30, 40 so-called layer one chain and uh, you know a bunch of a a bunch of them don't have any traction at all. And a bunch of them is a bunch of uh, promises of what will happen. All the great, wonderful things that will happen tomorrow, <laughs> which means they don't have users. They don't have apps built on top right now. It's all, not going to happen. It's all going to happen tomorrow. That's the story. That's the narrative. Whether you believe the narrative or not, that that is your own judgment. Okay. So to me, I only buy the ones that already have traction. So I, I think that you know, besides Ethereum, my my biggest, uh, um, you know, uh, holdings right now are Solana and Avalanche. Uh, I'm not saying others are not gonna succeed. I'm just saying these are the ones I'm focusing on. Okay, there are a lot of opportunities in in the blockchain space. I'm not gonna catch. Nobody's gonna catch everyone. So, but these are the ones I'm interested in. I'm not saying other other ones that I'm not buying are going to fail, okay? So, but if you are going to buy those, you better do your due diligence. (laughs) You better figure out what stage this chain actually is in, okay? So, um, which means you look at user growth, you look at wallet growth, you look at transaction growth, uh, you know, the the, the TVL growth. all these, you know, development activities and you know, bridge activities, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of metrics that you can look at to see if there are actually activities happening on this chain. If there are a economy being built here, or is this just a, a white paper, or people giving out, uh, you know, narratives of what this uh, on-chain economy going to be looked like next year. So there is a distinction there. So um that obviously, you know, all of the all of these are very new, so it's a high risk space. You got to do your own homework. Okay? What will we'll make one of these layer one's collapse? Well, if nobody uses it, <laughs> you don't have an economy. So um so yeah. So it 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 all boils down to if there are actually actual economy being built on chain on this blockchain platform. Uh, next question. Uh, so I mentioned in the article that some DeFi products like Anchor, they're giving out they're using layer one staking yields on the back end to offer saving rates on you like a US dollar stable coins for example was close to twenty percent interest rate. So the question is if those products are available to customers, why wouldn't they just hold stable coins for that 20% yield instead of staking layer one tokens themselves? Well because <laughs> because we are in a stage where these layer one tokens are appreciating a lot against fiat currencies, because their economies are growing a whole lot. Like, I, like we just talked about, United States grows to 2, 2% a year, okay, the world economy grows like 3% a year, but how much does the Ethereum economy grows a year? 200% or something like that, you can look at, you know, go 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 look at the Uh, wallets and the transaction volumes and statistics Uh, and and other economies are growing even faster because they're smaller, you know, the the, the base is smaller so they grow, the growth rate is faster. So their currencies are appreciating a lot more um, compared to uh, fiat currencies whose economy grows to to 2% a year, right? So if you hold fiat currencies you earn 20% from a product like Anchor. Yes. But I I I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that because I like I like holding the 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 I like holding ETH, I like holding SOL because um those economies are going to grow. So that's the even though this, the the nominal staking yields on those are lower like I think uh, Something like five to seven percent on ETH and Solana staking, okay? But you have the appreciation of the underlying token. But of course, you don't know whether they are going to appreciate or depreciate, or where the market cycle is. Maybe they all collapse tomorrow, and you go into a crypto winter, and so on and so forth. So you have a higher risk. So that's the thing. You either gather twenty percent on the stable coin, or you make a bet on, you know, native crypto. Uh, tokens, and then you get a staking yield. It's your preference. It's, It's your, 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 uh, your, your risk reward preference. That's different to everybody. Okay. Um, so, and the next question is this one of the ways that fintech companies like BlockFi and Celsius offer high yields on stable coins? Well, I the, these companies, I think they do a combination of things. They, they definitely stake. They do like yield farming. They do staking on layer one. They do like DeFi, you know, yield farming. They also do, you know, just normal, you know, uh, lending activities, lend to their customers. Um, if they have a huge volume, um, you know, they lend to the short sellers and lend to the arbitragers. Uh, you know, hedge funds, uh, so on so forth. So um, they do a combination of things to generate the yield, um, and uh, that's that's basically the, the the value added. They they hide all of that from the end consumers. So all you need to know is, okay, I get a eight percent of yield on my stable coin. For example, they do all this manage all this books on the back end. Okay. And that's the value-added of the business. Um, I mentioned mentioned products like self-paying loans or low loan liquidation risks by staking the collaterals from borrowers in proof-of-stake chains. What are these products? Do these products then lower interest rates charged to borrowers? How are they self-paying? Well, they're self-paying because the idea is you borrow, uh, you know, from these uh, DeFi protocols and you, you, you have to put up a collateral, right? So your collateral is ETH or uh, SOL or something else. And, uh, and, and the protocol, the DeFi protocol, then uses these uh, uh, your collateral to do yield farming. So you don't do those, you don't do them, and they do them. They do these yield farming and they generate a yield using your collateral. So that yield generated by your collateral pays for your loans. That That's what self-paying loan means. So if you're interested, you can check out things like Alchemix or Abracadabra um, and see how those works. It's a rabbit hole uh, <laughs> that you can uh, go down and do research all day if you're interested, okay? But the bottom line is uh, um, uh, you you have these building blocks uh, that the layer one chains provided, including the staking yields on their native token. And then you have the, you know, DeFi Legos can be built on top. And people are experimenting with different types of product offerings. Uh, some of them will stick, some of them don't, won't. But that's the beauty of this space is innovation happens fast and people experiment, okay? Um, Next question from um, Athanasius. Um, What's stopping the world's government from stopping this? Uh, This meaning like uh, layer one blockchains, blockchains becoming like uh, quasi-nation states, okay? Uh, what's stopping the world's government from stopping this? As it was seem to take away their power over monetary policy. Yeah, sure, that's why <laughs> governments do not like uh, things like stable coins or uh, crypto, like um, Bitcoin or Ethereum, other things, uh, because they're threatened. And right now it's still, you know, it's a 2.53 trillion uh, asset class. It's pretty small, right? It's just starting to get systemically important. So people start to, governments are starting to wake up. And that's why governments are scrambling to, to push out their CBDC, their, their you know central bank digital currency, because they don't want to be outcompeted by private sector tokens. Right. Now, <laughs> um, how much they can do is uh, it is is another is a different question. Uh, the, the immediate threat is not going to be the Ethereum and Solana of the world in the immediate threat is going to be stable coins. The US dollar stable coins or euro stable coins, because uh, like like we talked about uh, a lot of countries in the world, they already have dollarization problem, right? People prefer dollars because it's a stronger currency. It comes from stronger economy. And, uh, um, and the native uh, currencies of uh, some countries, they're not very good because the monetary policy is not very credible. So the immediate threat in, in, in crypto with the stable coins just make dollarization a whole lot easier. <laughs> So the immediate threat is from uh is from the you know, stablecoin dollars. Uh that's why all these governments they, they, they want to have central bank digital currency. I, I think they may be some of them may be barking uh barking up the wrong tree <laughs> because it's it's like central bank digital currency the problem it solves is, is uh, you know, ease of payment, ease of transaction. Okay, it does not solve the currency. It does not solve the problem of sometimes people have low confidence in their local currency. If they're like Argentina peso that depreciates like fifty percent a year, how are you going to have any confidence in the currency, CBDC or not? So the CBDC is not going to solve the currency, the quality of currency problem. Yeah, it maybe make pay payments easier, so what? So um, I, I, I think some some governments are going to uh, come to that realization soon. <laughs> so, but this is a good thing, so because in the long term, we're gonna have public money, government money, you're gonna have private sector money, we're going to have um, tokens like these layer one tokens that are semi money. They're not exactly currency, right? They're sort of like we talked about They're a combination. They have some qualities of currency. They have some qualities of uh, bonds. They have some qualities of stocks. So um, all of these things are going to coexist. So over the long term, more competition is good because without competition, what happens? If 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 the government's issue money is the only money of the land, it's absolute monopoly. They can do whatever they want, right? So that's that's why a lot of countries run shitty monetary policies because they can because there are no competition. So more competition is going to be great because it will be, you know, it, both the public sector and the private sectors will have to be, would would need to keep their act together, and uh, you you will have less stability problems, in um, in 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 currencies, uh, either public or private. So I I think over the long term this is going to be good, for the quality of monetary policy execution, um, in both public in both governments, and in, other, token. Systems or the virtual nation states. Okay. Um, next question from Xiang Ji. Uh, you've said many times that a economy needs the purchasing power's money to be stable. Yeah, because we said lower transaction costs, right? So you you need to expect the token price or sorry the currency price exchange rate to be stable. You need to have a you know. Reasonable expectation that the same dollar is worth similar thing tomorrow or the next year compared to today. Um, that would that would that minimizes transaction costs in the economy. It encourages the commerce, encourages transactions and different types of economic activities. So you said many times that you know you need purchasing power of money to be stable, and that a sharp rise will give rise to credit crunch. Yeah, it would, because just like what we the example that I give you, if I propose to lend you a hundred Bitcoin thirty years mortgage fixed interest rate, you you will not do it. Right? <laughs> so it it would it would discourage credit for sure, if your currency is supposed to be sharply rise in value over the long term. Um. So. Okay, so what's the question? <laughs> Okay. I, I, I guess the question, I guess the question is, uh, um, how does that square with the, okay, currency value will go up when the economy grows. Okay. So these layer one tokens going to appreciate. So are they good currency or not? So I guess that's, that's what his question is whether these layer one tokens are good, sound money <laughs> or not. So um, like, I, well, like we just discussed, in the short term, it's impossible for these values to be stable, OK? It, it, we're setting aside this speculative part. It's a huge because this, this is an entirely new sector, huge speculation, so much money flowing in, you're going to have huge boom and bust cycles. So any kind of stability just goes out of the window in the short term. Um, in 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 the long term and and also on the other hand you, you also have the economy on chain economy really is growing tremendously right and then we talk as we talked about with gdp growth it the value of the currency should grow if your gdp growth 200 percent a year value of the currency <laughs> should do the same right more or less so um uh, that's not going to have stable values in the short term whether it's, you know, proof of stake, proof of work, or, you know, proof of whatever. Um, so but I did make the point that in the long run, if, if you want to keep the currency value stable, the supply of the currency, you know, your, your, your M2, M3, should match the supply growth of the money, should match the growth of the economy growth of the economic growth because that's, that's how you keep the currency value stable. Because you, you, you need to have sufficient money to cover, roughly speaking, <laughs> a certain amount of activities, right? Assuming your, your, your velocity of money is, is uh, relatively stable. It's, your velocity of money, of course, it changes, but it, it has a range. It does not change drastically, okay? So it, velocity is relatively stable, you you have a certain quantity of money it covers it can cover certain amount of activities with stable price if you if that amount of activity expands so much and your money supply does not expand you're gonna have huge deflation in prices of goods and services in the economy and that's not good okay so um because like we already talked about multiple times, you want price level to be stable. So what do you do? You expand money supply to, to, to keep up with, with, the, um, with the activity, was the amount of activity happening in the economy, the GDP, mm-hmm. in other words, uh, to, to keep price level stable. So ideally, that, that's, I think that's what a sound money does, is target stable prices. Now, obviously that's not, that's, that's not what these, these uh, quasi currencies do, because everybody wants this, you know, marketing meme of uh, limited supply so that, you know, attract people to hold their currency, All right? Nobody wants to hear, oh, our inflation rate is 10% a year. Well, in reality, if your economy grows 200% a year, you have 10% a year increase in your token supply. It's, it's, a drop in the, it's a drop in the bucket, okay? That's already a deflation, hugely deflationary economy. But people don't want to hear that because people want this meme of uh, limited supply because people want the price to go up, currency price to go up. I think in the short term, fine. <laughs> in the long term, I, I, I think people will realize the value of price stability in the economy. whether it's on-chain economy or in the real economy. In the real economy, people, you know, realized that long time ago. That's why central banks all try to target price level, like inflation rate, do some sort of inflation targeting. Although they're not doing a good job recently. (laughs) That's why people complain a whole lot. But the thing is, just me, just, just because the you know fiat currency has depreciated or the price has in inflation rate has increased in recent period does not mean a deflationary, a deflationary economy is good no <laughs> what you really want is price stability so um so in that sense none of these currencies are sound money so um uh, but that's fine <laughs> because uh because these are again these are quasi currencies it's not like you uh it's not like a, you know on Solana platform yes Sol so Seoul is used as a um unit of account if you buy an nft it's denominated in sol right but if you borrow a land it's still you know most of the time it's in stable coin so um you will have a combination of things um in term, I, I think you have, have a combination of uh, tokens sharing the um, unit of account, medium of exchange, and store value functions, So these basic functions of money. You will have different tokens sharing these functions on any platforms. So overall, I, I, I think it will be fine. <laughs> as long as you don't have one deflationary currency, uh, like uh, throughout the system and there's nothing no, no other to- no other currencies no alternatives that i don't that's that's not good <laughs> okay and that's what the maxis all want they want one token rule them all and nothing else that that's not going to work but i think the current system is fine i, I think over time it will evolve to be you know different tokens they share some uh, they share across these functions with more emphasis on, on one of them than others. Like for example, Bitcoin, it will be more of a store of value function compared to the medium exchange or unit of account function because it does a terrible job as a unit of account, but it can serve as a store of value. So other tokens, they have other, you know, serve other roles and that's totally fine. Um, so over time we may see this, you know, unbundling of what, what we call money. So these different functions going to be uh, carried out and be served by different types of tokens. Um, that's what I think will happen. So these layer one tokens, they are some unit of account functions, but they are still currencies in the sense that, you know, you need them for every transaction on this platform that a uh, native token belongs to. If you are on Ethereum, you have to spend ETH in everything you do. So in essence, it's 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 currency used in transactions and uh, uh, the demand of this currency grows as the economy of Ethereum and grow, Ethereum grows. So all this, you know, traditional like all this like evaluation of currency valuation model, quantity quantitative model of money type of valuation model for exchange rate still applies. Um okay, so uh wow, that's almost an hour. Um, That's terrible. (laughs) Thank you. If you're still here, well, thank you for uh, listening to this. And uh, I will talk to you later. Okay, bye.